This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. A better web starts with your website, as you do. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty good, although I reached up to click on the answer button on um, on the Skype, mm-hmm. and I accidentally clicked the button that said, software updates are available for your computer, would you like to download them now? <laughs> and I clicked on yes, apparently. Oh, dear. You don't want to do the, that. <laughs> and the, the thing started to, like, started to work. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want that. And I looked, I, and, but the X button now was shaded out. I couldn't click on it. And there was no, canceling wasn't an option anymore. And so something right now is working behind the scenes on my computer to update my software, which I do not want. Mm, should we do a, open a support ticket for you? <laughs> I think so. Are you I should using, send a, um, I'm going to send a report to Apple. W- Windows PC or Apple Macintosh? <laughs> Uh, I don't even remember. I stopped updating uh, back before there was a difference. Thank you for your response. (laughs) Have you tried restarting? (laughs) I'm going to unplug the machine from the wall. Thank you. (laughs) Have you tried running the diagnostic? (laughs) Mm, My favorite of all the programs, the diagnostic. (laughs) Diagnostic indicates that it is not working. (laughs) (laughs) Diagnostic cannot cannot connect your computer to the internet. Thank you, diagnostic. That, that's how I feel. That's how I feel with lots of things. I mean, I was about to say that's how I would feel like if the if the electric power went out, and then there was a diagnostic base that required electric power to tell me whether the power was on. <laughs> but my my favorite one, I think I've mentioned this before, because you know, John, this is an evergreen program. We've done this for for many years now. But uh, listen to any episode at any time. My favorite is when. Uh, my Comcast connection goes from being merely a piece of human shit to obviously not working. And I can look, I can glance over at the modem and see that the right lights are not on. Something is wrong. I restarted. I do the rain dance. And uh, my favorite, though, is then when I have to determine why it's out. And so you call Comcast and they tell you to go to the website. Right. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's nice. They're smart. Although I met your Comcast guy. Uh, you certainly did. Isn't he a gem? He's a very nice man. I was in Colorado, and I was... Uh, I oh, was, this is a wonder... I forgot about this. This is a wonderful story. Well, it's a story. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how wonderful it is. Did the he first ask you for panties or something? No, no, no. The, the, reason that I, the reason that I was in that situation is I went, you know, I went, uh, I went to the conference on world affairs. Just this first time? For the first time, mm-hmm. yeah. Just, just uh, earlier this year. And... I had a great time at the conference on world affairs. It's and just as I predicted, as as I'm getting further and further away from it, I am remembering it as being a spectacular event that I would, you know, I would highly recommend. Hmm. But the but the one the one bummer was that I was they had me on their they had me in uh, in their system, I guess, on their radar as a musician primarily. Although the people who invited me, the the people really who invited me to come. I think understood that I was there as a, I guess, podcaster. Mm. 
But the musician just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, it does, it does. <laughs> to be to be misattributed and find out misattributed as a as as a musician first instead of being a potential retired director of the CIA is bad right. enough. Right. That is what they I should have been there as a retired. Like, we don't even have a slot in Excel for podcaster. <laughs> Yeah, and all all week long I'm talking to 70-year-olds, and I'm like, podcast. And they're like, podcast? <laughs> but, uh, but so I went to the big the big music performance, and they were like, you got to get up and play with all the other musicians. <laughs> Take a load off, Annie. No, I to- have I told you this story? I don't want to derail you. I totally want to hear, hear all of these stories. <laughs> were you, was, it, was it an acoustic guitar that wasn't plugged in, thrust into your hands? No, it was it was a thousand times worse. You know, every so all the other musicians that go to this that go to this conference are like middle aged jazz musicians. Some of them old jazz musicians. Some of them like properly old musicians who have played the Newport Jazz Festival. All their progressions have a two chord in them for forty years. Well, you know that they, they have progressions on top of progressions. Other oh. progressions have progressions. And they're like, no, 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 it's just a simple jam. Nobody knows the stuff. We just all get up there and jam. And I was like, yeah, not my, it's not my scene. I don't do that very well. Like, I like to jam. <laughs> Can I share but, an anecdote? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no, I'm saying that's, oh, right. that would be you. you that yeah. would be your, uh, your scatting would be going. Yeah, let, let <laughs> me riff. 18 minute story. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd walk up and grab the microphone and go, have I told you this story? <laughs> but, uh, but. But so everybody's like, they're all like super jazz. They're cats, you know. These these people are jazz cats, and and throughout the whole week, I keep saying like, I'm not really a, a jammer. I mean, if there was like a half rack of Strohs and we were in the basement of somebody's house, yeah, I would jam. But I don't know. I I don't get up and I don't get up on a stage with 25 people and like unless unless we're doing. <laughs> Unless it's like an extended, bring it on the heartbreak. One, two, three. yeah, exactly. Bring it on the heartbreak. Like, and everybody takes a solo. That's fine. But anyway, so I'm standing on the wings of this place, and they have rented a Stratocaster for me. <laughs> and there's an amp, and I'm like, I'm, I'm all set up. I like, I, I th- there's a spot for me on this on this stage where there's 18 other players, and they are. Let's see, there's two saxophonists, two other guitarists, like two bass players, a guy playing the flugelhorn, uh, three, like, yeah, scat vocalists, a couple of drummers, one of them from Israel, um, you know, the, the, people from all around the world, and they're out there playing basically the theme from Taxi. <laughs> you know, they're playing that... That smooth jazz, mid, mid, like mid tempo, mid tempo seventies cool jazz that that I'm sure in the late sixties or mid sixties was heavy duty shit. But even by the late seventies, it had you know I just kept seeing a Stephen J. Kennelly production. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like sit Ubu sit. It was it was. Um, it was music that I could not comprehend listening to, let alone making. And that's not to say that it wasn't amazing, but not a thing that I could that I could gain any traction on. And so I walked out on stage at some point, being pressured backstage by people, 
pressured in the friendliest way, but by someone holding a clipboard who was like, you got to get out there. This is part of the spirit of the convention, you know, the part of the spirit of the, of the whole week that we get out and we just take risks and we just go for it. And I walk, I walk out on stage and I get this Stratocaster and the band leader guy is the trumpet player. And he looks at me and he's like, all right, we're going to do something real simple, like just a, you know, four bar blues. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Four bar blues. I can, I can, I'll find some way to dig into this. And he, tur- he turns around and like, zabadoo, babadoo, damn. And the band starts. <laughs> And I'm just like, what the fuck is this? This is not a four bar blues in any world I live in. And I'm sitting on the guitar and I'm just trying to find the root. And I can't find I don't even know what key it's in. I don't know what key it's in. No, no, no. I think the guy shouted over to the piano player right before. He's like, all right, we're going to do real simple four bar blues. It's going to be just fine. And he looks over to the piano player who's blind and says, and says, what, you know, what key? And the piano player, he's like, leaves it up to the piano player. He doesn't, he should have looked at me and I would have been E. E, please, E, please, E. (laughs) He looks over the piano player and the piano player is like, I don't know, B flat minor. And they're all like, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, B flat minor. I don't even, my guitar doesn't even have that. And so I'm sitting up there and I'm, I'm just hunting and I can hear, I mean, it's fully jazz because every note I play is so far out. It's like the hippest note. In jazz, because these guys are just, and the, the reality is that none of them do know what they're doing in advance. It's just that their musical language enables them to, like, hear the progression go by. They, they understand. They think, the, about, they think about music so differently than we do. They, they might study theory really, really hard for years until they never really have to consciously, they can explain something with theory. I don't think they think in theory. No. Whereas with us, you have to go like, okay, one, two, four, five, or something like that. Yeah, and I think every once in a while, a guy, you know, there's like, there's music stands around, and there, there's like stuff on the music stands, but it's one piece of paper that has um, 80,000 notes on it. <laughs> and so every once in a while, a guy would point at a piece of paper like, hey, there it is right there. Didn't you see it? And, you know, and I look over at it, and it's like, it's like a Rorschach test. I swear to God, John, it sounds like a dream or a nightmare. It sounds like one of those, like, I woke up with no pants on the day yep. of the math final. So I'm standing. And the, and the other thing is I'm right in the middle of the stage. <laughs> like, I conspicuously walked out into the middle of the room because that's where my stuff was. Oh, the best part was I had sound checked uh, this guitar and amp. Uh, I, showed up at, I showed up at five when they said, like, sound check starts. No one else is there except for the sound guy. And I show up, and I'm like, hey, I'm here for the sound check. And he's like, yeah, nobody else is here. But they rented you a guitar and an amp. And so I stand on the stage, and I strum my guitar and do a sound check. And I actually check a vocal mic. And I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe they'll be like, hey, play one of your songs. And all the saxophone players will like, and we'll play Cinnamon together or something. So I check this rig. And then I'm waiting around, and I'm like, well, you think anybody else is going to come? And he's like, ah, you know, jazz guys, they'll probably just show up right before the show. I was like, oh, all right, well, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'll go for a walk. I'll come back. Were you thinking you might do a run-through or something? Yeah, yeah, right. Like, uh, let's, let's do a four-bar <laughs> blues. Let's pick a key. 
So I come back and the guitar is out there. Well, I walk out on stage. You know, it's the middle of the show. Trending toward the finale. I walk out on stage and one of the other guitar players who is from Argentina or from Antarctica or something is plugged into my rig. And I was like, oh, I was going to... And he's like, oh, I just plugged into that because it was... Because it was here. And I was like, right. Right. I mean, I was, yeah. And we're trying to transact this uh, on, a, on a live stage while people are like talking about the, you know, like, hey, welcome to the stage. It's the guy. And so the other guitar player says, well, you know what, man? I've played a lot tonight. And he unplugs and hands me the cable and walks off the stage. He was the one guy that I was going to be able to look at his instrument and tell what fucking note we were playing. Because the other guitar player went over, put his guitar down and went over and started playing the bass. Playing the bass facing the piano player. Like, he put put the bass on himself, turned with his back to me so that he could look at the piano player and, like, jam. Piano player couldn't look back, but, like... (laughs) And so I'm, I'm standing on stage. There's 20, there's 20 people and not one stringed instrument, except, except maybe a violin. But like not a thing that I could look at anybody and say like, hey, show me like your fretting hand so I can like at least know what quadrant of the guitar we're at. Anyway, so <coughs> about 45 seconds of hunting for notes. And I said, and just, and at this point, it's just flop sweat pouring down. And I'm, sta- I'm standing there, and inside my head, this voice is going, you fucking idiot, you knew, you never should have walked out on this stage, you never, ever, you should have said, you should have, you should have hit your hand with a hammer <laughs> before walking out on this stage. And so I turned the guitar, I took, turned the volume knob completely off, got a big smile on my face, took a step forward. And started just strumming the shit out of the thing. Like, yeah, sappity dap boom, And the guy, the trumpet player, looks over and like points to me, like, take a solo. Oh God. And I waved him off like like he had just said, pitch a fastball. I was like, no, sir. Thank you. Big smile though. Like, thank you, no. Woo! Hot! And they moved on, you know, he just like got off me and went to the next guy and you know the next guy took like a tambourine solo for 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I was just up there just just chicken picking and cooking on my completely off guitar. <laughs> that's that's you did exactly the right thing. Yeah, yeah, it was the only thing I could do. And it's best for the audience too. And, and every, nobody in the room could tell or gave a shit except, you know, I think there were a couple of people there who came to see me or were uh, were like aware that I was playing and talked to them afterwards. And they were both like, yeah, it was great. I mean, I couldn't really hear you, but it was really, you know, seemed like a lot of music was getting made. Mm-hmm. And I, and if I had just walked out, not even bothered plugging in a guitar and had just like, anyway, so the, the, the show is over and I put the guitar down, like, I think I put the guitar down by the door on my way out of the stage door. Like, I am not hanging around here. I'm not going to have a cup of tea after the show. I am out. Because I was just, I was, I think I was frustrated. 
so many times in my life I have been in that exact situation enough to have learned it will not it, it's never gonna play and yet hope springs eternal and that other voice the competing voice that says be experimental just get up there and just do it what happens if tonight's the night you know what if what if it it all of the stars align and it's amazing and you're mm. going to feel like an idiot if you're if you say no i'd better not do it and then the the last song they do is smoke on the water <laughs> and and there's a guitar <clears throat> b flat <laughs> there's smoke on the water and there's a guitar in the center of the stage with a spotlight on it that that was meant for you and you didn't jump out and and do it you're going to feel like an idiot you know that other voice that's like what's the matter take you know Take a risk every once in a while. But, Go but for you, it. But your, well, I don't know, super ego or whatever, put you in the right place. Which I mean, as an outsider looking in, I mean that's not your show, right? And those are the grown-ups. The grown-ups are doing like their thing. This is not yes. your thing, and you're nope. a gentleman about doing it. But that's the thing is, is, if you were the star of that show, if it was a John Roderick review, and you had maybe even if it was the same setup, you could find some way. To go to the mic and do something fun mm-hmm. and entertaining mm-hmm. that you knew your audience would enjoy. But almost anything you would have done, I'm not being negative, I'm just being honest, almost anything you would have done would have been disruptive and stupid. Absolutely. That's the thing. If I had said, <clears throat> if I had walked out there and said, and now I'd like to take it down <clears throat> a little bit and play you a little song of mine called Hindsight, <laughs> it would have, you know, like it would have been flabbergasting. It would have been a train wreck. Just the worst. And so, I mean, the, yeah, right. Uh, the only thing I could have done is walk out and say, okay, I'm here now. And so blues in E. Right. But I was the junior partner by a factor of 15. You know, like, I think the piano player was 75. And a lot of these people... Maybe they hadn't played together, but they had played, they'd all heard of one another. You know, like these are people who are gigging in a different realm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyway, I walk out the back door of the theater and I'm just like, I'm still flop sweaty. And I'm, and I'm, I'm having this argument with myself. I'm walking down the alleys of Boulder going like, ah, idiot. God, why did you ever walk on that stage? Don't ever do it. You know not to do it. And I'm <laughs> your saying, like, troll is a pro. <laughs> and I'm saying he knows the progressions. <laughs> all of your friends, name a single one of them, any one of your dudes that does the same thing that you do. Vanderslice, Bazan, Gibbard. Would any of them have agreed to go out on stage in, under those conditions? No, not a, not a one of them would have. You know, they would have said. They would have said, let's set up a separate show that's more like a songwriter night at one of the bars, and I'll play a little set of songs. And I mean, I think they actually tried to do that, and I shot it down. <laughs> but nobody would have gotten up on a stage full of jazz musicians and, and tried to, like, comp along. And so I'm kicking myself, and I'm mad, and I'm just I'm sitting there. I'm sitting on a park bench, and I'm like, ah, ah! And so I do what... I do what is naturally the thing in that situation, which is I go on Twitter and I say, tweet up. (laughs) I'm sitting on a park bench in Boulder for the next 40 minutes, kicking myself. If anybody wants to come say hi, 
Wow. I don't know why I did that. I never do. I never tweet up. But I was just sitting out there and I was like, I've got to get out of my head. I got to get out of this headspace because it's, you know, I'm, I am turning sour about a thing that doesn't really matter. I'm turning sour about a thing that actually worked out just fine. And I need to just, I don't know anybody in this town and I need to just like get out of, get out of this. I need to turn tonight around. I need to turn the ball around. And so I said, you know, tweet up. And within about 10 or 15 minutes, two people showed up. Wow. One of them was your uh, good friend. Jason. That's right. No last names. No last names. But we we got to get, uh, get him out of that the, company. We got to get him out of He's of the Italian there. persuasion. Mm. And he is moving to the West. I didn't know if you knew that. Hmm. Anyway, shows up. He's delightful. Uh, then a young woman shows up. She's delightful. We're all meeting for the first time. And then as we're sitting on the park bench talking, a car goes by. And as it goes by, the rear tire comes off. I mean, the rear wheel comes off. And the car, like, lands on its axle and starts scraping a big Lincoln Continental. Whoa. And so then, then of course, then that attracts all the juggalos that hang out downtown. <laughs> because there's, like, flames. And then the cops are there. Juggalos and love flames. They do. As soon as you're scraping metal on metal, the juggalos come out of all the doorways. Um, so it ended up being a very positive night and it was i know you just pulled that out of your ass but now just the the image of several dozen people in makeup like looking a little tentative at first like look like kind of like a (laughs) raccoon looking around a doorway (laughs) and then coming up like a moth to a flame yeah they're just like what is that scraping is that scraping their little heads poking around the doors i can i can i can be free (laughs) i like fire So, but it was it was a it was a case of uh, by the end of that night when I was finally walking home, I felt very I felt very light. I felt very I felt let all was right with the world, and I think it was that I reached out, I reached out to humanity, and said, "Now I think I was taking a risk if I had said if I had said I'm going to be sitting on this park bench for forty minutes, and and I just heard crickets." Mm-hmm. And it was just me watching the Juggalos. I would have been even more bummed out. But two wonderful people showed up out of the gloom, and um, and it was great. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the nature of your frustration. Uh, I mean, obviously the the experience of going out there, and and you know, you you manned up and you did it. But it sounds like you're you're well, you said as much that it's mainly it's the decision to have gone out was the bad decision. Yeah. Yep. You, 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 I, saved, you saved it from being something that was, you know, bad for the audience and humiliating to the band by not, you know, noodling along. But you think you, sh- you should have just said, no, thank you, no. The, it's a kind of, like, like at a certain point of self-knowledge. And, I, and obviously, like, I have certain insecurities about not being, like, like almost any musician would, of not being up to whatever the game is. And, and a lot of these guys, and, and I ended up, I ended up on a, on a panel, a much larger panel with some of these cats and it came around to me and they're all talking about like, yeah, man, you know, you just get, you play with people, you just derp, derp, and it's amazing and zabbity do. And it came to me and I said, unfortunately I come from a school of thought that, um, that spent a lot of time, uh, spent many years, really pretty 
pretty solidly feeling like soloing was an was an act of egotism and even colonialism. Like the the school of music that I came up in, nobody soloed. Nobody took a solo at all. Only Cer- only kind of like ironically, ironic solos. Uh, yes, and those were intentionally bad or intentionally like. I mean, basically mocking this like a, style. Like a dead milkman, punk rock girl kind of solo. Like, yeah. Like a deliberately sort of like wackadoodle thing. Well, and you know, my live shows often have big solos that mm-hmm. that I would uh, that I would love to be playing earnestly, but for for a long time played those big solos. Ironically, I I confess that I did. That was the way that I that I was allowed that I allowed myself to do it. I mean, my bandmates would be sitting like openly scoffing at me as I took my big comedy rock solo. (laughs) And so, you know, and I'm sitting on this panel and I'm like, unfortunately for me, I, I come from a school where we feel like soloing is, um, bourgeois. And yeah, you how, could, how the cats feel about you that. could hear a pin drop, you know, and of course this is a this is a scene where it's a multiracial group of musicians and like jazz is the jazz is the path or whatever. And I'm sitting there saying that the act of soloing is bourgeois. And it's just like okay. I mean I felt like a member of Gang of Four all of a sudden. <laughs> <clears throat> not the band <laughs> well, the real one <laughs> anyway uh so by the end of the week it was i had come full circle or i had i had made a circle it's not that i had come full circle but i had at least traced back to the beginning but the idea that you the idea that you know what you are good at and that you that you set limits about what other people set limits about how you will be pressured into like singing at somebody's wedding or, you know, a long time ago I said, I don't do karaoke. And, and yet if I'm at somebody's wedding and they hand me a microphone and go, come on. And everybody's drunk. You know, I would, I would generally say no, unless it was the bride asking, but this was, but, but again, you can't do that because there are those moments where you say, yes, all right, I'll do it. And it ends up being the greatest night of your life. So, it's it's just one of those like I think it's it is just life in a nutshell. Yeah, but you're you're describing something that I, I've really struggled with at a at a higher level that gets there are instances of this that are specific to the kind of thing you're talking about. But you know, you're talking about two very different things. On the one hand, um, you know, one of the myths of getting married is that it's the bride's day. It is hmm. the bride's day. The bride. I mean, that is the bride's. The bride. A lot of those women have been thinking about that day their whole life and they have real particular ideas that should be honored and we're all there you know but once you're actually in the machinery once your arm is actually in the gears you realize that it is all about other people so mm. you know what if the bride wants you to sing a song that's a nice thing and and you could see doing that now you put me straight straight down a memory hole of a, a conference that my old internet advertising group put on and there was a, at the time a very powerful group it was the kind of the boutique like you know, we were making CPMs three, four, five times what anybody else was making. Whoa, it was, it was CPMs part, big time. Well, basically, big time anytime, CPMs? anytime one of our ads loaded, it made a ton more money than anybody else could even touch. It's it was very prestigious and and run by a very famous guy. And 
And of course, they said, you know, seriously, you, though, what is a CPM? Oh, cost per thousand views. It's just it's just a way of of quantifying like what you charge based on you know how does thousand views equal m in that equation uh, m like a thousand i think oh cost per mil something like that cost per mil but you know I, I went to this thing i was very happy to be involved in the group it was a great money maker they're great people it was very like i say it was it was nice to even be invited to be in the group let alone be invited to say hey you know a lot of our advertisers are coming to this conference all the other um you know publishers are going to be there but you know I, nothing against these guys but like i one of the reasons I ended up leaving this particular group is because they were doing more and more of what has now become completely okay, which is like having a post on your site that's sponsored by somebody or, uh-huh. you know, and I actually kind of, I gave away, or as we used to say, left a lot of money on the table because I just couldn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And e- even like the one or two times I did it, I felt so dirty because that's just, I'm stupid and old and that's how my mind works. I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. Even today, it really irks me when I see sites where especially if they don't announce that it's a sponsored post like it's and you, you know what i mean right you mm-hmm. know you know this feeling mm-hmm. of like I do. you know I do. hey here's the deal you know if this car company wants to use my song in an ad pay me appropriately but nobody's ever going to confuse this song with this car and think that you know what i mean it's there's that's separate things buy this t-shirt you get a t-shirt i get money these are clear transactions that make sense yeah it's the th- but all the, because all those sites are purporting to be also generating like content that is independent or even journalistic that's that's the word is one reason a lot of us really relish the rise of things like blogs and now today podcasts as a thing was that you got to make you know you were always i always find myself calling up jonathan colton but he's no longer unique in this regard somebody and the way i phrase this to jonathan you know when we very first met i said what i admire about you is that you're circumspect about who's allowed to fuck your shit up for almost no money Uh and i've always been since i got a little smarter about this i would get I would start to feel from a monetary standpoint, like don't just let people frame you in, in a certain way, unless you really understand what you're accepting. And, you know, you're actually kind of giving away part of yourself when you let other people decide who you are and then put you under the rubric of their brand, for example. So anyway, long story short, I could feel the, the, the kind of the velocity of this group was getting more and more into stuff where like mommy bloggers would just have something sponsored for a year and they'd go on trips sponsored by computer companies and stuff. And I just, that gave me the the fear a little bit. I show up at this thing where I think I'm mostly going to have to sit at one of those round tables with a pad of paper and a pitcher of water and Mm. and smile and and applaud and stuff like that. I find out I'm going to be on a panel Mm. after the announcement. I'm going to be on a panel. I don't know any other I don't think I knew any of the other people on the panel. And if I did, it was only by reputation and it wasn't good. Uh-oh. And it was basically, I was up there with one person who had a blog about celebrity babies where <laughs> she, she wrote, and it was a she, but she, she wrote about the baby products of celebrities with affiliate links uh-huh, uh-huh, and how uh-huh. that was growing. And another person talking about how they were hiring people, you know, and this is me being a one person guy with a one person site where I run the server and everything. And there's people out there talking about hiring people in Australia so you can have people posting around the clock. And I, I got up there and I said the best I, you know, I think I ended up being a little bit of a karma suck. I, I yeah. didn't. So I, first of all, I made the mistake that you made, which is I agreed to do it when I thought I really shouldn't do it, but I felt mm-hmm. obligated. I did mm-hmm. feel in some ways like the bride was asking me to sing. Sure. Here I owed you it are. To You're guys. Thing. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I didn't really know what I was in for. And then once I got up there, I think I being me, 
especially me of like six or eight years ago, I said some things that were slightly at odds with right. what everybody else up there said. They which were is, hoping you were going to say like, I sell a lot of cameras through my site. <laughs> buy a fucking camera. <laughs> you think these video <laughs> tutorials are free? Listen, buy a camera. Buy a fucking camera. If you yeah. don't click on that link, you're stealing from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a, a no, big derail, but like, I, I don't know. There's something about that. And it's, again, it's why I, I'm not saying people like, you know, whatever, Dylan are perfect, but people out there who are very reluctant to let other people frame them. And if you yep. do license the song, you understand what it is that you're licensing. You're, right. you're treating this like a business. You're treating this like this thing. And you're never, you know, when people try to pay you in compliments, I know you have feelings about this. People yeah. try to pay you in compliments. People try to pay you in reputation. Like nobody ever offers you that stuff unless they're going to get more out of it than you will. And they take a little tiny piece of you with them when you yeah. do that. So yeah. I still, you can tell this has been like whatever, six or eight years. <laughs> and I'm still sitting like on my toadstool feeling like a dick that i got up there and had to like explain my position alongside somebody who has affiliate links to celebrity baby products right <laughs> right kanye and uh what's your name oh kim, uh, kim. You, you know her brother's not going to their wedding because he's heavy oh is that right he doesn't yeah, i don't know why i ever look at a news site yeah, I, I, you know i was on buzzfeed today looking at uh, 25 uh, people that are dead you won't believe should, what happens next it should be dead uh and it's all pictures of people in skateboard crashes and i you know i'm like <laughs> But yeah, I was talking to a friend the other day and I was like, what do you, you know, what do you really want to do? What do you really want to do? And she said, I don't know. I, you know, I kind of, you know, like, how do you become a travel writer? She says, and I was like, well, what kind of travel writer? Do you mean somebody who writes for glossy magazines where they never, ever, ever say anything bad about a hotel? Mm-hmm. Right. Like those people have a job. Those people are. How do, you, how do you get to write the top ten steakhouses in America for an in-flight magazine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you start an advertising company. <laughs> yeah, those people are publicists. Those are They're ads. Not travel those writers. are ads. Those are not. Those are not actually articles. But there are magazines all around the world. There are there are stacks and stacks of magazines. You could build the foundation of a house with all the magazines that are that basically are PR people writing glowing reviews. So much more than people. I mean, even smart people, I think, have no idea how heavily – I mean, obviously, any fashion magazine, any travel right. magazine, that's – that's nothing gets in there unless there is some money associated with it. Right. When was the last time you read a review of a really expensive hotel that that was basically like fear and loathing in Las Vegas? Right. I walked into this hotel, and the first thing I smelled was blood. <laughs> like, when – when do you ever read travel, actual travel writing? You hardly ever do. Well, you f- you f- maybe find it on an independent blog. Maybe you find it on an independent blog. But those people are not making a living, pr- presumably. They're, n- they're obviously, or they're clearly not being flown around. And they're, they're, not, they're not being compensated for, it's not like a Lester Bangs type situation, where right. they're being compensated for their personality in describing this travel experience. Right. Like, I don't think <clears throat> Rolling Stone has a travel guy on staff whose job is to just go out and just write about his the shit he gets into and she said well what about the new york times magazine travel section (laughs) and i was like what about it like the like those people perceive their job to be that they go find interesting experiences and package them thematically and then and then yeah but the 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 part that seems so obvious like oh but i'm a really good writer i would be perfect for that right right oh yeah i mean that's great and you should yeah you should work for an advertising company because i mean it's like oh 25 spas in the seychelles that 
it, you know, that don't have long lines. It's like, what kind of writing is that? I've read, I, I've read a lot of anecdotes over the years that I've got, I've, I've heard this, these, this a same flavor of this one kind of anecdote a lot. And my feeling about it has really changed. And the basic anecdote is this super fan goes up to super creator. It could be comics, could be books, could be movies. They go up, they go up to the person and say, you know, how do I become a best selling comic book writer or whatever? And the, the person basically looks at them straight in the eye and says, if you have to ask that question, well, and then, you know, insert answer here. You're an idiot or you've never really thought about that question or you've never actually tried to do it. If you have to ask that question, then you, I can't help you because it's kind of like asking, how do I become pre- president of the United States? Well, it's actually in some ways extremely easy to become president of the United States. If you meet the criteria and you get the electoral college victory, you become president. But how do you get to that point? Well, boy, sit down, bring a, pa- bring a bag lunch because there's a long road to, to getting <laughs> right. to that point. It's already yeah. too late for you. Yeah, well, there's that one gateway at the end where you see you get your coronation and you get your sash and a parade. But like, you know, I think most people, like in the case of <laughs> become a travel writer for the New York Times, I mean, ask the thousands of people who have tried to get that job before. Right, right. Well, and, and there is this, and, and again, I mean, I hate to, uh, I hate to put everything on the shoulders of Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there is this there, 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 this whole culture of manifesting. Like it it's it puts this it's why there are so many freaking photographers now. Like what do you want to do with your life? Oh, I think I want to be a photographer. And I'll just manifest that. And now I'm a photographer. It's like wow you are a photographer, you take pictures, but like to be, to be a photographer of that kind, it's just like being a videographer or, uh, uh, or in a, I mean, a landscape architect. (laughs) A lot of it is just code for like, my dad is rich. (laughs) You're a videographer people. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and if you, if you don't have, if you don't have a rich dad, if you're not just looking for a cool thing to justify your time on earth, but are really looking for a job, um, I think you should, I think you should cross travel writer off of the list of fantasy jobs because, um, or, or replace it with, uh, publicity flack. Right. Because it's, because the idea that you have of like jet setting around with a series of like silk scarves billowing in the wind as you visit five star hotels and give them glowing reviews, but have, but retain your like personal integrity. Um, one of those things is going to have to go. And, and like, this is, this is really the old man in me talking, but the, um, there's, there's a question that very few, I'll just say young people or naive people or people who haven't had enough ex- experience yet. There's a question very few people ask, which is what industry could I go into where working improbably hard and never taking no for an answer and looking for every opportunity and sacrificing everything would be a good choice for me? Because right. that's the answer to a lot of these is you can do a lot of things, but you'll very rarely, I don't want to turn this into another show, but like you'll very rarely end up in this one place that you saw when you didn't understand the business yet. Mm. Unless you understand like how people 
he'll still very rarely get it. But you might end up becoming one of the best copywriters by starting out wanting to be a tele- television writer. It's just that you never know like which opportunity is going to come along. And they all come down to like an extraordinary amount of sacrifice, including the sacrifice of some kind of uh, pie in the sky dream that you had that was never, never really um, a sane goal because you didn't really understand what the job was. You have to just go out and work really hard for a long time to get anything. I mean, you know what I mean? And that's, I hate to say work hard because it isn't like you're working in a mine, but you do have to have this tenacious personality of like getting back on the horse over and over and over, even though there's no money in it for a yeah. long time. And, and, you know, but just waiting around for the New York times to call you is like a pretty long shot. What, what does Dan Benjamin usually say in these moments? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about something I like. <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. Believe me, John and I know wherever we speak, we have hosted Roderick on the Line with Squarespace since the very beginning, episode zero, and they've been uh, great every step of the way. Squarespace makes this whole process so simple. They offer an easy drag-and-drop interface. they got beautiful free templates that you can tweak to suit your needs. All their designs are responsive, so they look great on every device. If you do get stuck, Squarespace offers 24-7 support through dedicated teams based in New York and Dublin. Squarespace plans start at $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which I highly recommend. Also, every plan comes with the ability to create your own online store, so yeah, you can sell the stuff you make right from your very own site. So whether you're a podcaster, a musician, writer, photographer, or what have you, please go check out squarespace.com and tell them you heard about it on Roderick on the Line. In fact... You get a free trial plus 10% off any package you choose by using the special offer code SUPERTRAIN when you check out. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the line. We could not do it without him. Uh, uh, yeah, but the, yeah, right. Obviously, the, the, thing, the thing is that if you had that personality, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be sitting around dreaming about uh, being a travel That's writer. such a disappointing answer, though, because it really does sound like every piece of bullshit you've ever heard from everybody in your family. Because, you know... The advice you hear that, I mean, you'll hear that advice often from people like me, from failures like me, who are like, well, I thought that was going to be really easy, too. And, you know, now I'm laid off from the auto parts factory or whatever. The, the, the concept that, that, that uh, I think intrudes or, like, or pollutes the water is that there, there really is maybe more than any time um, since the Renaissance in Florence... There is this sense of patrons and of magic money, magic income streams that if you, that, that it's very hard to, it's very hard to perceive like where the center of the stream is. But if you can stumble along, if you can bumble into a a, a situation where some billionaire decides that you're his pet project or or somebody like somebody um sort of innocuously seeds a reference to their product into your content in a way that that you feel doesn't diminish the content but they are a rich person and they believe their subliminal advertising is really effective and they are willing to pay mightily for it or you know the the idea that there's all this money out there that is essentially free money mm-hmm. and you just have to be in the right place at the right time and tap into it. You just have to. <laughs> right. And, and this is the, when you, when you go on a cruise, 
and you become aware that the cruise lines and the watch companies and the perfume companies and the people who run the, the, the duty-free stores and the liquor companies are all in bed with each other. And not a single Rolex gets sold where every one of those people doesn't take a cut of it. You know, it, just it, deciding which brand of shampoo is going to be in your hotel room. You could so many meetings went into that bottle of shampoo. That's right. And, and nobody is getting, there's, you know, nobody's getting rich. Everybody is getting a little percentage of it, of a, a little percentage of promoting the idea that, that everybody's rich and that the luxury brands are, are, uh, perfectly appropriate and so forth there are people with tons and tons of money there are people with more money than they know what to do with and every once in a while somebody does get their kickstarter funded a hundred a thousand percent more than they asked or every once in a while somebody does kind of hit a jackpot or work on uh, work on a project and then they forget about it and oh it turns out that they're part owners of a big thing or spray painted a freaking mural on the wall of the facebook startup and got paid in shares (laughs) you know there are enough of those stories that it just gets into the subconscious of the culture in a way that uh, that a lot of people and myself included are kind of walking around like not (laughs) it's not it's not where's my parade it's like well where's my payday if, I, if I'd just been in this one spot this one time, like the rain would have fallen on me. Yeah, I, I, I would have gotten that. I could have fucking spray painted a mural on the Facebook wall if I knew that it was going to be if that it, that I'd be worth three hundred million dollars. And though those that little tickle of of feeling like it's really just a it's really just a question of like riding the elevator with the right person, and on the other end of the elevator ride. We're shaking hands, and he's saying, oh, "My people are going to call you." You know that that uh, that the Medici's are going to fund your little your little stu- sculptor studio or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that that it's that that is part of the uh, in a way part of the the lottery culture. Well, it's a kind of magical thinking. It's total magical thinking, and and yet there really is. It happens every once in a while. There really is that. Yeah, there's there's a phenomenon behind a lot of the the shitty turns out social psychology work and social psychology journalism uh, that I, I find very interesting called the file drawer effect, which is you know think of it this way. Effect. Yeah, yeah, which is like how much of this research did you not? include in your study because it didn't meet your the results that you wanted but differently um if i flip a coin a hundred times and it lands heads up 51 percent of the time if i throw out 30 percent of the times that it landed tails that really makes it look like i can get heads more often but you're 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 effectively cheating in that sense and and i don't mean to call this cheating but in the sense that like it's very it's very popular today to talk about like what you've learned from your failures but like nobody asks what you learn from your failures for somebody from somebody who hasn't had a big success right. so you don't hear all the times that somebody 
that somebody got in the elevator with a Medici and it didn't turn out with funding the sculpture studio. Those right. stories don't get out. And, and when they do, they're only, it's only because somebody's talking to that person because they succeeded. I'm not saying don't try, but I am saying like, don't look at your life as a game of Kino where you just keep waiting for this thing to come along. That's going to bring you up to the same uh, bar of success that all these other people got so easily. Cause they only got it easily after having stuff happen. That was not easy. I was thinking about this the other day. I went to school with a bunch of computer science majors in the late 80s, and they were studying computer maths, <laughs> and they were designing programs uh, that were impenetrable uh, with, with really, really bad user interfaces. You know, all the, all the exact same stuff that made certain people millionaires. And I haven't talked to these friends in, a, in quite a while, but I, I knew a whole handful of guys and like none of them are, I don't think, millionaires. And realizing that even in my own life, I have, I have the experience because there are times when I walk around and think, God, if I had just gone into computer science in the 80s, mm-hmm. I'd be a millionaire now. And then I, I, I just had this kind of corrective realization that like, wait a minute, I basically knew all the people in computer science at this one college. And we were all pals. We were like, uh, we were like Tetris buddies and, and stoner pals. And I don't think any of them are millionaires and they are still working in computer science. Like most mm-hmm. people who were working in computer science in the eighties didn't become millionaires. Like most people don't become millionaires. And the, and just as you're saying, like the, the people that do get all the, get all the attention and it, and over time, the, the cumulative effect is that everybody's a millionaire, but me. And, uh, well, it, gets, it gets reinforced because then you start looking for examples of that to add to your sad portfolio. All and, you have to do is go on a cruise and it's like, who the hell are buying all these Rolex watches? Right, right got to be all the millionaires that aren't me it's got to be everybody else that's a millionaire i texted you last night um for no particular reason and i'm saying if you haven't watched just Ed- sending me dick pics <laughs> continued on next photo that's <laughs> 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 a wide aperture uh, it's macro lens I, I i watched uh the first season of deadwood yeah did you but i didn't i didn't make it to the second season of deadwood I forgot like how good that show stayed. I, I what I what I remember about that show is I've watched the first five episodes in particular probably five times. I've watched it all the way through once, and I've watched it through the first couple seasons at least twice. So I've gone now that HBO is on uh, the Amazon Prime. I, I'm up to like the fourth episode of season two in a week, but Whoa. you know it's but that, 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 that's that's kind of what you're talking about here in some ways. It's you know it's like that old it's the old joke about you know, gosh, in all these transactions, the only people who really make sustainable money, not a lottery, not a one time lottery, not a one day lucky shot, the people who made the sustain make the sustainable money today are lawyers. Because lawyers will always make money off the cost of other people's transactions. Financial people, same way. And in that case, as Jeez. we said so many times, whether it's San Francisco or Comstock or Deadwood, it's the people who sold the equipment that got rich. It's not right. it's the people who are selling the, the $5 gallons of milk. It's not the people across the board. If you look at the actual numbers, I would bet you that there's most of the people who made the most money were probably – there are a few lucky people and then there are like extremely lucky people. Um, early on, and then there was the the people, and then, and then there was the people who sold the pans and sold the shovels and the picks. 
That that's the sustaining money because even if you get one lightning strike from a Medici, that doesn't mean it's going to be there. In the case, like you know, the thing is, if somebody comes to your your travel blog and says, "Hey, we'd like to insert these positive reviews of things," you may not even realize that they're they're experimenting. They're doing that same experiment with five hundred other sites because it's not that costly for them. And after a month, they'll figure out who got the best results, and suddenly your lightning goes away. Yeah. And then you're like, you're going, what happened? I thought I, I thought I hit the lottery, but that, that's how it works. Like nobody gives you money unless they will think that they think they're getting more benefit than what they're giving to you. And you forget that at your peril. Yeah. The city of Seattle is a city built on the crushed dreams of a thousand or the crushed dreams of, of a hundred thousand people who headed up to the Yukon to get rich and the gold fields. Was that like one of the last places where you could? Get supplies yeah. that'll get you well, there. Yeah, Seattle, uh, like Seattle, sent all the goods up to the Yukon and collected all the gold. Like the when you when you if you did if you were in the small handful of people that actually struck it rich up there or, or made or got gold, you'd take that gold down to the to the little pop up general store, and that that guy would weigh it on his scale and put it in a bag and send it by dog sled down to Lake Bennett or whatever, where they would put it on a paddle boat and take it to the train. And eventually it would make it into Seattle. You know, this was where the gold came. And, um, like the Filson company was built originally to send clothes up to the gold miners and the whole, the whole city. I mean, Alaska, Alaska is what built Seattle trying to trying to exploit alaska but like none of the none of the names that ring out from that era are names of miners <laughs> they're all names of you might, you might get a pass named after you where you died <laughs> <laughs> no even the passes are named like stampede pass dead miner pass <laughs> blackened horse face pass no, all the names that ring out are the bankers, the shopkeepers, the the yeah, the gold pan sellers. The, they are the they are the the ones who have their names on buildings. And the miners, I mean, by the time most of the miners arrived, the gold was all claimed. Pinched or, out as they say. That's right. And so Limber Dick cocksuckers. <laughs> it just became <laughs> it just became like a a, a rush town of people spending their last dollar spending the last dollar that they that they received from back from boston uh outfitting themselves like a dude in all the latest gear and, and was then, he sipping it and then, I love that show so much. Uh, and then they they uh, you know they get it they lose it all in a poker game right and then they're like you know have to wire home for the money to, to get a, tra- a one-way ticket back. That's why there's a couple of things that I, I, I mean, I, it's cool that you watched it. I, there's a couple of things that, and again, rewatching it for the millionth time that, uh, that made me think of you. And, uh, I mean, one of the things is all, like, basically all of the characters. Yes. Yes. But not, not the obscenity or anything, but just, I love the elevated language, of course, but the, um, but just the, the kind of the ethics of the town and the importance of, honor and the importance of sort of doing doing what you say you're going to do and doing it within the fairly mature um 
as, as, as weird and primitive as the culture is, it is a mature culture where you know without anybody having to tell you, like, you don't fuck with Al Swearingen. Like, you right. just, you get that pretty quick. You know, you get that you can shit on this part of the road, but you sure better not shit on that part of the road. Yeah. And nobody has to write that down in a book. And a lot of the pushback, you know, there's through the whole first season, especially, there's all this pushback about what happens if the United States comes in and, um, disqualifies all of these claims as being illegal, you know, and, and starting over. And, but, and that was one part of it, but also the, um, I don't know, just the whole, the one thing that's so great through every episode is like, nothing is easy in this yeah. town. There's, yeah. there's something where like, you're going to have to buy something or you're going to have to deal with somebody. In the case of like the first few episodes, they, they can't even buy what they want to buy. They can't buy the land to build their store. Right. And I just, I love the idea of like every day being this constant struggle of like, fucked up bureaucratic overhead even though there's no rule book that everything you do is you're going to have to like buy you like they say the same roach in the same biscuit like every day and uh i don't know (laughs) for some reason that seems like that would appeal to you well and what's great about a show like that uh, and and i guess a town like that is that they're always microcosms of of the big of the big world the big picture this is kind of what I always say to people who come up to me with conspiracy theories, like elaborate conspiracy theories. When you look at when you look at Deadwood and you realize like Al Swearingen is in te- in charge of the town and everybody's terrified of him, but it's a lot of work to be Al Swearingen. It's very stressful. It's incredibly stressful and people are fucking up on your behalf all the time and you are constantly mad. And you're out there. I have to deal with this. Yeah, you're out there killing people that need to be killed, but you don't. You know, you very seldom really relish it. It's just, it's just work you've got to do to maintain your position. Because if you don't do it, there's all these little grubby rats around your ankles that are waiting for you to slip up. And from the perspective of like somebody who's scraping by in the town. Al Swearingen seems like he's got it made. And Al Swearingen seems like he's the... He's in charge of everything and his invisible hand is everywhere. But from Al Swearingen's perspective, it's a shit ton of work. He didn't ask for it. And he and he perceives it to be his duty to maintain a certain kind of order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when you extrapolate that out and you realize that all of the, all of the international systems more or less are just giant extrapolations of that right from 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 a remove it seems like this great opportunity but it's all pretty rickety and all it takes is is cy tolliver coming to town to suddenly disrupt the whole idea yeah it's leadership yeah yeah and 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 uh when you think about like oh the 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 trilateral commission is running the running the world or whatever there are all these secret rooms where men are making secret plans and the reality is there are people sitting around in in those rooms they are making plans but there isn't there isn't this additional level of intention behind a further curtain like they are just guys who are improvising and they have power but they don't have unlimited power right and they don't have enduring power that always evidences itself in the same way Right. It, there is no great great grandson, great great grandson Rothschild, who has always been moving. His grandfather was moving the levers, and he is moving the levers, and we are all being slowly poisoned by our water bottles. It's just <laughs> everybody is everybody is scrambling and improvising to 
to keep keep the ball moving sort of incrementally and and ultimately stupidly that that uh if human beings were smart enough to to keep even the smallest conspiracy a secret and alive for longer than <laughs> half a generation yep yep you know we would be the evidence would be everywhere the evidence would be everywhere that we were that the world actually ran that way but in fact the evidence is everywhere that we are just that that the streets are full of shit and we are just trying to walk from one saloon to the next without getting in a gunfight you know it's a right <laughs> we are not in a there is no system and and the perception of the system is just that you've never you've never sat in Al Swearengen's office and watched you know the ins and outs of how how a guy like that keeps it keeps the ball in the air keeps the ball in the air today today yeah, yeah right. exactly i mean there's like i just wrote this down there's like three things that are difficult in life working with other people getting shit accomplished and keeping secrets three things that i think are pretty hard to do and they're super hard to sustain to work with the same people for 10 years to get things accomplished for 10 years and to keep whatever you're doing a secret for 10 years all those independently are super hard but yeah. it's what every conspiracy requires yeah. three of the most difficult things in the world so it's so ironic to me that the people who are the least trustful in the world being conspiracy theorists they got they got a reason for everything They'll figure out all these things, but the people who trust least in the world have an incredibly bizarre idea of how much bad guys can trust each other. Right. Oh, my God. It's totally uh, bananas that, that you could pull off something as large as like having stuff appear on the money and nobody would figure it out except this one guy. It's yeah. so – like those guys never told anybody else. Like how, yeah. how does that work? Is it Omerta? Like how does that work? Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think I have the advantage and I feel like – I feel like – uh my my uh, my friends share this advantage but but my peculiar advantage is that i really do not think that there are that there's anybody out there that's any smarter than i am and that is that is an advantage for me and also you know can 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 be a disadvantage but i hear people all the time say like well you know, that's just, they're just those people that are just up there that are just a lot smarter than the rest of us. And they are doing things that we don't understand. And an, I just, an, another form of magical thinking. Right. And I just don't believe it. I, I have met a lot of people in my life across a wide spectrum. And some of them, people that have tremendous power. And I just don't, I, I, I mean, I have met people where I'm like, wow, you're smart. Like that you, I like the way you talk or I like the way you think. But smarter than me meh you know no i mean not really and so the idea that so so as a result of that i feel like my interpersonal relationships with people are a are a template for how people interact with one another i don't feel like my interactions with people are principally that different from the way any other person interacts with any other people and if if I cannot keep a uh, keep a conspiracy going among my friends for more than four weeks, let's say, if I can't keep if I can't tell one person a secret and not hear it back from a third person four weeks later, then how could anybody, right? And like my my group of friends is a or my group of associates and my experience in the world is 
just a, I can extrapolate from that to see what human behavior is. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's one of the, it's one of sort of my theories of my growing, like the book that I'm about to write on feminism, which I know you're going to be fascinated by. (laughs) But like all of the most powerful people in my life are women and always have been. And that does not square with the cultural narrative that we've all accepted that women are in a, a uh, disadvantaged position vis-a-vis men. Like, clearly, they, clearly the, the culture is structured so that men are in charge, in, in air quotes, but in my own life, the women are in charge. And that's true of everybody I know. It's true of every woman I know. It's true of every man I know. There's no, I don't know a single man that is really in charge of the women in his family. And so there is a, there's a tremendous tension in my own firsthand experience between what I perceive to be real on the on the, in the small scale, in the microcosm of my own life, and what I'm being told is true in the macrocosm. And it's always anecdotal. Well, this person, that person, well, this statistic, that statistic. But in the, in the reality of how I perceive life, I live in a matriarchal culture. And the perception of our culture being patriarchal is a, is a, is a a question I'm interested in unraveling. I, I, I have a theory as to why we perceive it that way. And certainly that there, there's a lot of, you can point to a lot of anecdotal and statistical evidence to, to bolster that theory. But my, and I think everyone's firsthand experience is like, no mom is the head of the family. And so was grandma. And so was great grandma. And so how do you how do you square the one with the other? And it's and it, and it feels like very much in the family of the idea that like well in my personal life uh, you know like person X is sleeping with person Y's wife and everybody knows it except for person Y. But we are all willing to believe that the government controls the media (laughs) or the Jews control the media, you know, that there, that there are, that there are international systems that are, that are hundreds and hundreds of years old where everything is being puppet, puppet controlled by uh, people that have back engineered alien technology. But, you know, but, uh, but the people around me who have, everything at stake can't even manage to carry on a simple and normal affair with one another without the whole thing blowing up in their faces within a a period of weeks or months. So I know I'm going to get a lot of angry letters for this, but, um, but I'm working on a comprehensive theory. I'm I'm looking forward to that. I I only discovered hmm, 
hmm, the last 10 years, something that, you know how it is, when you discover stuff from your past, or your family's past, and you go like, on the one hand, wow, that's really surprising, but wow, that really makes sense, and that makes mm-hmm. so much sense that I can't believe it's this surprising. But, the, the you know, my grandfather uh, was a very, very proud man, and, uh, you know, a mason, and uh, I've told you about him. He's, mm-hmm. you know, from British Guiana, and very English and extremely racist, and very, just just really what pretty much what you'd expect america was like you know um, he carried a uh, he carried a like a short bull whip everywhere he went <laughs> he might have had one on his lapel but but you know my mom told me you know a few years ago something that i guess i should have realized which is i knew that my father or grandfather and my grandmother both worked um and I, I, so the way it was always described i always knew my grandmother was a secretary that's a, you know, it was always understood that she was a secretary. And my grandpa had a career at uh, Cincinnati Gas and Electric, right? Easy mm-hmm. enough to understand. Right. And, uh, but that the, sounds like the story. And that's, that's the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the little more texture behind the story is my grandfather uh, had a pretty blue collar job where for basically 30 years, he would shut off people's electricity every day. He drove around in a truck, and that was his job. And he eventually got, I think his promotion was he'd been there long enough that he eventually became what they called, like, he said it was like deputy or something like that. Uh-huh. But like, no, I mean, his job was basically that he, he had a blue-collar job his whole life, but he got benefits, what and whatnot. But, but my grandmother's job as a secretary, my grandmother was an executive secretary for many years to the founder of a pharmaceutical firm in Cincinnati. She'd had a whole variety of jobs and until she really just, her faculties were not there to do it anymore. But what I found out, she was the breadwinner in the family. Like, yeah, he got good benefits and stuff, but my grandmother made a ton more money than my grandfather did. Yeah. And to quote a line from Deadwood, a title, uh, you know, a lie agreed upon. I think that, I think that, I think it was, you know, I, I, this does not do anything to either refute or, or bolster your, your, um, your book's theory but like i think it was just understood that like grandpa would always be seen as the patriarch of the family that's right even though grandma is the one who was responsible for them being able to do stuff and pay their bills that's right and i i i now hearing that boy that sounds so dumb now like why why couldn't i have figured that out before well, i had no reason to figure it out because everybody that was the kind of thing that a family would just you know sort of you know it was not the kind of thing that came up at christmas talking about not, that you know not just a family but but our entire our entire human family. Yeah, like, so she she let him she let him be the boss. She let him be the boss. That's right. <laughs> I'm not saying that means anything, you know, political in a larger sense. Maybe it does, but all I can say is that like that narrative as it was sat just fine with me. Yeah. Um, from my well, entire childhood and young adulthood. The thing is it sits just fine with everybody. And and the you know, the 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 lion is the king of the jungle. The male lion sits and <laughs> sleeps for 20 hours a day. Sleeps for 20 hours a day. <laughs> That's right. And the and the 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 culture of lions is absolutely a female culture. But we when we when we take a picture of the the lion and put it on put it on the title card of a of a movie company, it is the it's the male lion with his big roar. And he's big. He's the biggest lion. So when push comes to shove between him and any other one lion, like he's probably going to prevail. But he's a he's a figurehead. He is the you know he's the male. It's the male plumage, really. Anyway, the the uh, the angry uh, the angry letters, or the or rather the the um, 
I, I don't anticipate angry letters because I haven't really explained my theory. But we'll, they we'll will, save that. We got a lot of episodes to come. <laughs> there will be there will be a lot of instructive, I think, emails that I get from people mm-hmm. explaining how I'm wrong and don't understand. I, I, well, I, I I will just I will just say in this case, I think one argument could be made that the system that needs to change is the one in which Grandma feels like she should let Grandpa win and let him be the figurehead. And isn't it kind of a shame that you can't just call? call that what it really is, which is that they're two people trying to get by and that uh, if it matters and it shouldn't, but if it matters, grandma's the one that's really the one, she's the powerful one. Well, that That, I think it's a system that makes, makes it okay for her to demur to his power that I think is what people are struggling against. That is the thing that we have been struggling against for the last 40 years or 50 years. The, 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 the idea that the, that what is the perceived imbalance of power is the actual imbalance of power. And so what we need to do is change the change what we perceive to be the structures that uh that allow for this imbalance of power. But there isn't really any awareness that the perceived imbalance of power is not does not actually reflect an actual imbalance. And that what where we were starting from was a system uh, that was actually in balance it just had components or or was in a was in a cycle of 100 years or 200 years where it had been out of balance after the industrial revolution and was kind of like it, it, after world war 2 it was particularly egregiously kind of uh, uh, trying to integrate new technology was making the imbalance kind of ugly the perceived imbalance but we have been trying to we have been trying to put a system that that actually was in a kind of equitable balance we've been trying to write it and put it into because because we were not conscious of what i think people were for thousands of years conscious of which is that dad does this work mom does this work and when when it's time for somebody to stand up in church and say, our family is here and I am the representative of it, it's dad that does that job. Mm-hmm. But when it's time to really set the standard of what our family does and what our, what, what our culture is, it's mom that does that job. And so for thousands of years, I think people were, did not perceive there to be any imbalance between the genders there was just a recognition that dad did the front man stuff. He did the talking. He did the, he, he was the one that went to town. He, it, when it was time for somebody to write the history of our people, it was dad that did the job, but that that was, that didn't mean he was in charge or that he was, or, or to the degree that we wanted somebody to be in charge. We, it was dad that got that, that, that it naturally filled that role. But the idea that he was in charge in such a way that he was dictating to mom what we thought or did, I think, is is unreal. It, uh, that doesn't exist in any family I know of, and I don't think it existed throughout history. And we have a we, we're watching Mad Men now and reflecting back on this post war time when we were living in these little these little subdivisions where all of a sudden grandma wasn't there anymore. It was just mom and dad and the two kids. And there was a, the system was broken, but it wasn't, it wasn't that the, that gender roles had always been broken and 
now we're finally discovering it, but really that it was just a, a moment in time when mom and dad, neither one of them knew what the fuck they were doing. And, and we've got it, we've got imprinted in our minds that those, that those mad men gender roles are somehow indicative of how gender roles were for, for hundreds and thousands of years. And we we're not aware that that is the anomaly. That was the, that was the, the outs, the outlier era. So anyway, we're living in a world now where we have been trying to fix. We're trying to fix the underlying cause of a, of a system that where we're only seeing the, we're only seeing the shadow box of it. You know, the, the perception that grandma shouldn't be ashamed to claim that she is the breadwinner. When in fact, you know, I think grandma was happy to have granddad be the, be the puffed up, you know, the stuffed shirt at the head of the family. That that is a traditional, that those are, that those are traditional gender roles. And that, that, and that, that those are actually traditional for a reason. And that that is a system that is actually in balance. So now I'm going to get some angry letters. Oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> but, but I'm, you know, I, I, the more that I, the more that I apply this theory to what I perceive, the more I realize that for us to, to for us to be, ex, to, for us to have accepted the narrative for the last 40 years that we live in a patriarchal society where women are enslaved requires of us that we that we deny what our eyes and hearts tell us about the people right around us like about our own families about the things that we see every day like women are in charge they're in charge of our culture they're in charge of our families they are the prime movers of what we think and feel and so how, how all of us, men and women both, can walk out into the world and say, yes, but the fact that there are, is an income disparity or the fact that there is violence against women or whatever, the, all, the, all the evidence to promote the idea that there, is, that there is a conspiracy, a giant conspiracy for hundreds and hundreds of years on the part of these men that are supposedly like in charge of everything who have these mysterious powers. I'm very curious to know. I doubt very much that William Buffett doesn't answer to his wife. Ultimately Warren Warren, whatever William Warren, the Oracle of Omaha, they call him. Yeah. The Oracle of Omaha answers to his wife, just as we all do. I answered her. I'll <laughs> answer to more to Mrs. Buffett. I, you know, I'm on her email list, mm-hmm. and she's like, "What are you doing? What What is your culture? Don't go too far off the reservation." I hope that nobody takes my idea and starts working on a book because I'm gonna I'm gonna write this book and it's gonna make me a pariah. But I I, I think I think there's plenty of room in the space. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 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 What are some conspiracies that actually really happened and worked? Do you think? Well, that and I think about this all the time. What are the conspir- What are the conspiracies that worked? And I mean, 
there are like the ones that work for like more than a month i mean there are the conspiracies uh, what 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 the what history is littered with is attempted conspiracies that failed right i think the holocaust is a tremendous conspiracy that worked you might and, want to clarify that. You mean in the, sen- in, the sen- in the sense that they were hoping they could get away with it and nobody would they, – they, 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 they tried they – tried, they, especially in the later days, there was a lot of scurrying to cover their tracks. Yeah, they They're managed- very, very personally well-auto-documented. Auto, auto, uh, uh, they, they documented in extreme detail and then tried to cover it up. But, you know, the, 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 the amazing revelation that we've had, you and I, just on this program, that the Holocaust really didn't start until '43. Well, the, the final, it, the final solution, yeah. the final solution, yeah. and that it was over by forty-five. Mind blowing! It's in, it's it's incredible that they marshaled that many people and that much material and that much information technology, and were able to um, were able to to s- successfully perpetrate a crime on an unprecedented scale. Like that is an example of a, a, a conspiracy that was predicated on the fact that there was already a, 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 already all those systems were in place, and they fit the puzzle piece of mass murder into a bureaucracy that was all that had been designed for for a different purpose. You know, well, like, and, while, and while they rallied, um, certainly rallied and, and stoked that kind of hatred, it would have been a much harder sell to the people who had to make the machines uh, if they didn't already kind of feel that way. If, if there was not already such such a, a poisonous feeling about uh, certain groups. Yeah, right. But I don't think... You couldn't, have just, you couldn't have just generated that about people with brown eyes. I think it was, I think it was so compartmentalized. The people that were making Zyklon B... We're making it as a as a rat poison, you know. That, that's the that's what makes it such a, a such a conspiracy. Like nobody went to the Zyklon B manufacturers. They, they didn't have an employee meeting and say, "We're ramping up production because we've decided that what we're really killing is Jews." I want everybody in here to give me twenty five ideas for Zyklon <laughs> yeah. B by noon. Listen, everybody, take a knee. Well, twenty five tags. <laughs> like did and this is this is the this is the whole question of complicity. Did the chairman of the board of Merck, Far, farber yeah uh, i i Jen farber yeah did he know i mean you have to say yeah he probably did somebody somebody went and went and stood in his office and said we need we need a hundred times more of this uh, pesticide than we were ordering before wink wink right but did they who knows? Who knows what was happening at, at that point? Did that guy? That guy, I'm sure, claimed that he didn't know, and his and the his um, his sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters all, I'm sure, believe that he didn't know. But at what point? I mean, the people who knew what was happening, it was actually pretty. Uh, they did a the 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 Nazis did a brilliant job of of controlling information, right? But they were. But they were in a totalitarian bureaucratic state, and it only lasted for two years. And I, I, you know, I know that there are some listeners who would say we are living in a totalitarian bureaucratic state. We just don't know it. 
but we're not, in fact. Like any other conspiracy that actually succeeded, that came out a hundred years later, can you name one? You know, this makes me think of an, uh, not really, but I think there's an, a, an interesting distinction to be made between an ongoing conspiracy and a cover up. So I think it's one thing to say, holy crap, somebody accidentally shot Johnny and mm-hmm. now we got to go bury him and mm-hmm. nobody tell. Right, like right, that, right. that you could you could see that as a conspiracy. I, I I would really contrast that though with the Jews run Hollywood. Sure, sure. That's I a think... real different kind of thing. Or you know, it doesn't have to be. You know what I mean? Any of these 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 nutball ideas that there's some kind of a pseudo formal cabal of people who work behind the scenes to manipulate. That's the kind that I find incredulous or yeah. uh, incredible. It's just the idea that um, that 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 many powerful people, all Al Swearingen, could work with that many other powerful people. And and not have it get out. You know, the, I think the reason it's, it has such a popular hold on our imagination is that the Soviet Union really did, like, control information to such a degree and, and, and do that whole revisionism where, yeah. you, where little by little pe- people get painted out They're of the picture. Airbrushed out of a photo, yeah. Yeah. So that by the time, you know, if you were raised in... In the Soviet Union, but you know, born in 1930 and you know, lived to 1989 or whatever. They're, they're presumably, from our perspective, outside looking in, we think of them as being people who are living according to one truth that is largely manufactured. Um, and there are all kinds of, you know, there's all sorts of evidence of that just in my own experience walking through romania and like talking to the people where they're like oh yeah well the the commissioner of this department promised ceausescu that all the trees you know that this was the most uh fertile part of romania and all the trees were bearing fruit at all times and so ceausescu was coming on a tour of the area and we went we had to go to the open market and buy 10,000 bushels of apples and then pay a bunch of peasants to take those apples and tie them in the trees. Staple them to a tree. <laughs> and that, that uh, for one long stretch of the road, the, some, some group of people who didn't know any better had tied apples in all the pine trees. Is this a true story? This is a story that I was told. That's an amazing story. So that Ceausescu, as he was driving through in the back of his limousine, you know, that the person sitting next to him could point out and say like here look look how look how fertile uh, fertile it is here in arad we have uh we have you know we have apples growing in the pine trees or whatever <laughs> but the the story as told by romanians to me was the the point of that story was that ceausescu and the people around him were the ones who were being hoodwinked or were too stupid to, to know that you can't, that first of all, there aren't apples in the trees in April. And second, that there aren't apples in pine trees. And, and the, the story that, that I kept hearing in Romania was that what, what happened was it was a, the, the, the culture of lies was a product of these incrementally small exaggerations where a guy said, 
I have the most fertile part of the country and we're going to make, you know, we're going to exceed our harvest this year. Oh, it started as that, you, as you described, inert bullshit, like bullshitting. It started as like right. tall, tall tales, basically. Yeah. And then the guy sitting next to him at the table was like, well, we're going to exceed harvest this year. And then pretty soon everybody at the table is going to exceed harvest this year. And they, and that goes for a couple of years until they have a bad year. But now everybody's, everybody was already lying a little bit. And so it's much harder to when, you know, then you have a bad year and, and, uh, and crops are halved. Right. If you'd been telling the truth, you could just say, well, we had a really bad year, but you've already been lying by 10%. And so now you have to keep that lie up and you're like, well, we didn't lose any crops. And then nobody did. But, so, but the guy at the head of the table is making economic plans and economic predictions based on what you're telling him. So he says, we have a surplus. And our neighbors in Hungary had a bad drought this year. But we have a surplus. So we're going to sell apples to them at an inflated cost. Uh, and, we're gonna, and then we're going to take that hard cash and we're going to build tanks with them. And so then the, the, the message goes out, well, we, we need, you know, a thousand bushels of apples from every department because we're going to sell those to Hungary. Mm. And all the, the, all the department heads are like, we only have a thousand bushels of apples. Well, we can't, we can't reveal the lie. So we're going to send all of our apples to Hungary. And then there are no apples in Romania. But the people at the head of the table don't know that because they're being lied to. So they sell those apples on the open market and then they build tanks with them. And uh, from our perspective, sitting in America, it's like those evil people are lying. You know, they're like starving their own people to build tanks. But the reality on the ground is much more complicated and it's a much more, it's the responsibility is with every little tiny lie. So Ceausescu had no, he had no idea. People are putting pieces of paper on, in front of him that say, we're the richest country in the world. He's not looking for information that makes him look bad. He's not. And that's the thing. He, the, the, and his crime is that he's not intelligent enough or interested enough. Yeah, he's to, in, incurious. He's incurious to say, what's the real story? And when he does, when he does say, let's go on a tour of this. I'd like to see that. <laughs> People tie apple trees in, or apples in the pine trees. And he's like, uh-huh. Well, sounds good to me. You know, like, ultimately, he's a boob. But, but the idea that the... the that that is a conspiracy that is coming from a, a, a tribunal as opposed to like a, a, a broken culture that is like feeding on its brokenness and it's a, and it's a, it's a death by a million cuts. It's actually much more depressing. It's incredibly depressing, but it's like, it is fundamentally human in a way that, that it's you know in some sense it's easier to understand how a person through a series of small lies could find himself on a stepladder tying an apple into a pine tree it's easier to understand how that crazy story could be true than it is to understand how a nation of people could allow themselves to be willing you know willfully starved for 50 years because they're just taking instruction, you know, because they're living in a culture of such total fear that nobody dares move left or right, you know? Like, 
the one thing, the one thing sounds bananas, but I can see how you would end up there. Well, you the know, uh, thing, you can grow bananas in pine trees too. Well, that's the thing. I'm sure they were tying bananas up there too. So I don't know. I use that litmus test uh, whenever I hear a story about like about how somebody's in charge or about how um, how the the world is imbalanced. I'm just like, if if I import that story to my little world, my little group of friends, can I see that actually happening? And sometimes the most fantastical ones I can. I you know I could see you. Tying bananas in my trees. <laughs> You'd cut it down at daybreak the next day. <laughs> I gotta pee. I gotta pee so bad. <laughs>